Welcome to Present Value. Our guest today is J.C. Treader, current starting center for the Cleveland Browns and president of the NFL Players Association. J.C. played football for the Big Red from 2009 to 2012 and was subsequently drafted in 2013 in the fourth round. Welcome to the podcast, J.C. Oh, thanks for having me on. You know, I think first we were interested to hear a little bit more about your path to Cornell, what brought you here. I know you had some family that went here, but now you're in the NFL and, and that's not a path that is typical of students here. Uh, so I wanted to hear more about what that decision-making process was like for you to come here. Yeah. So like you said, I had, I had a sister who was at Cornell, two years older than me. I had multiple uncles that had gone to Cornell and uh, it was a school I wanted to go to. Um, like you said, I don't think anybody sees the normal pathway as Cornell to the NFL. Uh, it's it's always a dream of, of probably any uh, kid is to grow up to be a professional athlete. So it was always a hope. But you know, I, I came into school expecting my you know, after graduation to go to law school. And then after a little bit more of, of growing and, and getting a little bigger, uh, by the time I got to my junior year, I, I started realizing that the NFL was a legitimate possibility. And then once I got to my senior year, I knew that it was definitely going to be an option. And, and then you, you start kind of realizing that path is going to be the one you have to go all in on if you ever want to make it work. And you, you stop looking for uh, jobs or, or studying for the, the LSATs or anything you, you do for that. You just, uh, you just focus on training and, and getting ready. Did you have any regular summer internships before that? Uh, you know, you always see that Tom Brady resume going around with his insurance job on it. you have anything like that? I was a Cornell fellow in, in Buffalo, uh, the High Road Fellowship. And then I, I did that uh, too. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, I was, uh, I did that for my freshman summer, uh, going into my sophomore year. And then my sophomore summer, I interned in the city of Ithaca and just stayed around campus so I could work out still. And then once I hit junior year and I had my junior day where like an NFL team comes and does the interviews and you realize you're kind of on their radar. Uh, then my summer internship was literally working at the weight room for the, for the summer. So I could just stay there and, and train as much as possible. Yeah, and that 2009 team also had Brian Walters, correct? Another guy who made it to the NFL. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's great. And then, you know, Luke Tasker and Jeff Matthews, I was teammates with for for a lot of my career. Luke uh, and Jeff both went up and had really successful careers in the CFL. Jeff bounced around uh, on practice squads in the NFL for a year, and and Luke had a chance to come back, but stayed in Hamilton, um, and and finished up his. You know, he had a tremendous career. Would love to hear more about your experience in the ILR program and how the background in our classes prepared you for your current role as president of the NFL Players Association. Yeah, I started off, um, like I said, I wanted to go to law school and you kind of take your core classes and then you can start shaping the major to be what you want it to be and, and dive into what subjects you want to do more on. So I, I kind of stayed right down the, the middle of law classes and union classes for my junior and senior year. And in the end, you know, I, I thought I was going to go to law school, um, but doing the union classes for so much was uh, a huge help in, in what I'm doing now. Uh, and that's been kind of the, the interesting part. Uh, when I decided I wanted to run for president of the NFLPA, I started reaching out to classmates uh, and professors that, that I'd had before just to pick their brains and talk to them about kind of what, what I should be thinking about, what, what I should be considering. And, and that's kind of the great thing about Cornell is you just meet so many tremendous people, both classmates and professors that, you know, whenever, whenever you need to kind of call back on them, they're, they're going to be there for you. 
so that that's been great. And you know, I, I took classes. I, I know the ILR school has built way more of a of a sports collection when it comes to their classes now than when I was there. But I remember taking uh, econ of collective bargaining and sport uh, was one of the classes where we really just dove into all the CBAs from the major sports leagues, and that was an important part of what I do now, obviously. Um, so that that was kind of the probably the, the the class that fit most with what my day to day is now as as a union president. Yeah, and I was hoping for a moment we could take a step back and you could explain to the viewers really, you know, what your role is as president of the NFL Players Association, what that entails, how you were elected, and you know, overall what your responsibilities are. Yeah, uh, so every team has a rep, uh, a head rep, and then multiple alternates. Obviously, the NFL has a ton of turnover, so you're constantly kind of replacing uh, and filling in for guys as they get traded or cut or retire, whatever it is. And then we have our our next step of leadership is our executive committee, which is made up of the president, uh, nine vice presidents and one treasurer. And those are two year terms that are elected at our annual board meeting. So last last year when I when I ran, I I'd made the decision in January after the season was over that I, I feel like it's time in my career to take on more responsibility. Um, time to, to kind of dive into this. I felt good about how much time it takes to prepare or what I, what I have in my plate currently. I felt like I was able to, to add the added responsibility to it. And, and then you, you, you go down to the, the board meeting and it's really a, you know, you're running for office. And it was the first time I never ran for you know, high school president or, or anything like that, student council. So this is kind of my first time running for, for an office where you have to talk to people and um, the day of the election, you give about a 10 minute speech to you have all 32 teams reps down there. You give a speech for 10 minutes and then you break up and do, I think there's four rooms where the reps break into and they just pepper you with question and answers uh, with Q&A. And um, you just, you know, they that was an interesting time for us as a union because we had um, already negotiated our CBA that we were voting on. The voting was open. So the negotiating had been done. The voting was in the process. And a lot of the guys just wanted to know what, what was going to happen moving forward because you didn't know if it was going to pass or if it was going to um, you know, be declined. So guys wanted to know, you know what your stance on the CBA was, whether you felt comfortable leading the union if it passed or if it didn't pass, and, and what your, your best path forward would be. Uh, so it was a really unique time for, for that election to go through because there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and um, you know guys really wanted to feel comfortable with – a guy that could go in either direction. And I think my background at Cornell really helped in that because I felt like whether we passed it and we were going on to 10 years of labor peace and we were moving on to other issues, I would be up for the challenge. Or if it was going to not pass and we had to go right back to the bargaining table going into a, the year of expiration, uh, they felt I was going to be capable of doing that. So I, I think the, the Cornell education was a big part of, of guys' comfort in me taking over that role. So you mentioned the sort of the uniqueness of you know the situation you took over when you became president. You know, between the new CBA and the COVID pandemic, you took over your position as NFLPA president during an incredibly turbulent time. You had to keep your membership safe and informed while remaining sensitive to the struggles of a nation grappling with its own divisive issues. And you had to achieve all of this while learning a new Browns offense and building relationships with new teammates and coaches throughout the impersonal environment of Zoom meetings and teleconferences. How did you manage to balance all of those things? Yeah, it was kind of a, a two-hand shove into the deep end of the pool. Um, you, you get elected a week later, the CBA passes. So you kind of take a deep breath of like, okay, well, like that would have been a, a huge issue that now is is settled. And then 
after about a couple days after that CBA passes, the nation goes into lockdown and the, really the world goes into lockdown and you get kind of tasked with the subject of how, how are we going to play a contact sport in the midst of a contact disease? And uh, it, it was a really difficult uh, issue to, to grapple with because it was a, a novel and emerging virus. People were still learning about it. People had questions about it. We had our duty, we felt, to educate our players on what was going on and giving them updates, uh, as well as their families. We were holding uh, all player calls where anybody could call in um, with their wives included if their wives had questions about like what, what does their kids need to do, like what's the best way to keep their families safe. We, we really wanted to make sure we were providing as much information as possible from reliable sources. Uh, we had medical professionals on the calls to answer those questions and give them uh, direct answers to their questions. So th it was a tough time. And, and that was the whole off season was trying to figure out how, how to do this, how, how to play this sport. And we knew we had a tough time. We were going to be the first sport to attempt to finish a full season in a non-bubbled environment. Uh, we had seen other sports come back in the bubbles, but we were not going to do that. We knew that wasn't feasible. So we really had to dive into the protocols. Uh, we had to make sure guys felt safe. And at the same time, we negotiated the option for guys to opt out if they didn't feel safe. We weren't gonna force somebody to come back and work in the middle of the pandemic. So we were trying to look at it from all, all corners and make sure guys um, felt safe if they were gonna come back, but also they had a choice to make with their families whether it was the right decision to make to come back. Uh, those were long conversations. I've learned more about epidemiology than I think I'd ever want to do, especially going to ILR. Science wasn't exactly my uh, my favorite subject. So uh, that was a unique challenge, but it, it was uh, a tough year. And in the end, you know, we, we finished all the games on time. Um, it wasn't perfect, but I, I think we did a really great job, the two sides, the NFL and the NFLPA, working together to get a season done, um, get our guys paid, as well as keeping guys healthy. Yeah, and the Browns had their historic return to the playoffs this year, breaking that 18-year drought. But, you know, that first game was played without your head coach, Kevin Stefanski, who was out because of COVID. You know, what was that like taking the field and, and playing the game without your signal caller on the sidelines? Yeah, but by the end of the year, I would get the updates sent to me at around like 10 o'clock every morning of the league-wide testing results for that day. And it would always be like an anxious part of the day where you'd realize like, how, how difficult is this week going to be for, for the NFLPA? Um, and, and we got hit with it in Cleveland. And like you said, we were down a ton of starters, a ton of coaches. Um, we were down to our third offensive line coach, our, our head O-line coach and our assistant O-line coach were both out with COVID. Our head coach was out with COVID. Uh, and you really felt for that because the city of Cleveland hadn't been in the playoffs in a long time, hadn't seen the success we were seeing in a long time. And some of the guys that did get COVID, like Joel Batonio, who's a good friend of mine on the offensive line, uh, has been here through some really tough years for a long time. And this was his first opportunity to, to play in the playoffs. And he comes down with COVID that that week and has to miss it. And, you know, those are just, you know, our first concern is his health and his family's health. But then you start thinking about that, of how much work he put into that season, realizing that he might not be able to experience the, the playoffs. And, and you understand at this level, the playoffs are far from a guarantee. Uh, you're not guaranteed to ever experience them again. That takes a lot of work and, and some luck as well. Um, and and I, I, it was really rewarding that, that to win that game against Pittsburgh 
not just for the city of Cleveland and for all the work we put into it, but realizing that all those guys were then going to get back for that next game and be able to, to feel it and play in the playoffs and get that experience. Uh, it was just a cherry on top to make it a, a really special moment to have those guys back with us. You've been through a few coaching changes now in Cleveland. Presumably, when you get a new head coach, things are not going well. Does it take a while for a coach to earn the trust of the team, or is everyone really excited about getting a new face in the door and changing things up? I think one thing Kevin did really well um, is he came in a really difficult time, obviously. We were only doing Zoom meetings. The offseason had been had been canceled. It was a virtual offseason, so he didn't get to see us in person until training camp. And, you know, he's tasked with almost a, a culture change virtually, which it's tough to change a culture in person, let alone when you can't see each other and can't interact with each other. Uh, and I, I think Kevin was just really purposeful with everything he did. And um, his first focus was making us grow as, as a family and not just coworkers and having us look at each other as more than, than just, you know, employees at a business, but instead part of a, a family. And he did really good about that. And then every day he was just really purposeful with his message about what we wanted to accomplish and how we wanted to get better. And I think that was one of the, the biggest parts of changing the culture was his leadership and his direction um, and, and you could you can see how purposeful he is with everything he does, uh, controlling that because the culture is continually shifting, continually changing, um, and he's got a really good grip of making sure we, we stay on the right path, we keep growing as a team the right way. Uh, that's been one of his greatest skills since getting here. And JC, your your position, the center position, is, is often thought of as the heart of the you know heart and soul of an offense, and certainly the leader of the O line. You're often responsible for things like calling out assignments and defensive formations. In college, you were mostly, you know, exclusively a tackle. How big of a transition was that position change, you know, not only from the, the vastly different skill sets and techniques, but also being forced into an on-field leadership role? Yeah, I, I had a unique switch because, like you said, I played left tackle in, in college, but I hadn't played offensive line much. I, I was a high school quarterback, played two years at tight end at Cornell, and then switched to left tackle for two years. Um, so it wasn't like I was a uh, left tackle. I, I, I kind of was just playing the, the position. And, and then when I got to the NFL, I knew I wasn't the typical size for left tackles. Um, so I figured it would be another position change. But um, 10 minutes into my first offseason practice, broke my leg in Green Bay. Um, and that was pretty much the end of my season. I got back for a couple games at the end. Um, but my focus on that was, uh, okay, what, I, I can't walk, I can't practice, uh, I can't really work out, what can I get better at? And that was understanding if, if I'm going to make this switch to center, I really need to know everything. Uh, I need to have the answers for every question, every assignment. I need to know what everybody's supposed to do. So that was really my focus for those you know, for four months that I couldn't walk or do anything was I'm just going to study and, and become, you know, try to be the smartest guy on the team when it comes to our assignments uh, and that's been kind of my focus ever since was I, I try to be a, a calming presence in a really stressful uh, environment where no matter what's going on, no matter what the, the score is, no matter what you know situation we're stuck in, uh, I try to be extremely calm, um, know what the answers are and make sure guys, um, I take that off guys' plate where guys aren't worried about what the defense is in. I can tell them that. I can tell them where they're supposed to go. I can tell them what they're supposed to do. Um, that's always been my focus since I came into the league and had that you know, long four-month break. I knew that was um, going to need to be my difference maker to, to bring value uh, as I was coming back from injury. With all the trick plays that the Browns run and that 
tight end background. Are we going to see you in the back of the end zone anytime soon? We saw one of your offensive line mates, Kendall Lamb, there last year. I I bring it up constantly. I think I, I think I drive the coaching staff nuts, um, but I will continue to pound the table for it until it happens. Uh, I continue to slide in ideas and, and formations that could could make it work. Um, so we'll see. I, I still think I have a few years left on uh, on, on my legs, so I, I'm hoping I uh, eventually get the opportunity. How are the hands still? Oh, they're still good. I, I have total faith in them. So now we'll know when we see that play next year where it came from. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, another question I had for you was, when you get someone like Baker Mayfield entering your locker room, someone who is the number one overall draft pick, plays the quarterback position, is well-known for his leadership in college, you know, how does someone like that earn the respect of the veterans in the locker room without it so much seen as if you know management is handing him the keys to the kingdom and he's kind of the de facto leader? How does he organically take control of the team? Yeah, I think for for players in a locker room, it's really um, it's just like a BS test, um, and that's about it. We have a ton of different personalities, ton of different backgrounds, ton of different world outlooks. Um, but the only way that you're going to lose a locker room or, or not have guys you know respect you is if we feel like you're being phony uh, and not yourself. You you can be almost anything and have any any thought process or or personality as long as we feel like that's legitimately you. Um, so you know Baker is a uber competitive uh, guy, loud in your face, but that's who he is, and that's fine. Like you you can if if that's who you are, be yourself, and guys respect that. And guys gravitate towards Baker. Baker's a guy who, who guys like being around, like hanging out with, like mixing it up with. Um, so from the moment he walked in the to the building, he was himself. And and guys like when they see a young guy not be timid or scared or nervous, and that he walked in, knew who he was, knew what he was capable of, and wasn't going to kind of dull himself down to fit in. He was going to be himself, and that's what guys like to see. You know, when we have to, we do so much work together. We, you know, we we put our bodies through a, a ton of of pain. Um, we like knowing who the guy is that we're going to battle with, and as long as that guy's being honest with himself and being honest with us, like we're we're all good with it. Like it, it, it doesn't matter to us. And does the team tend to be hierarchical, or are these young guys encouraged to to challenge the the veteran players and coaches, or do you kind of need to work your way up to that point? I, I think it depends. There's definitely um, not a hierarchy, but you know the the veterans, the the veterans kind of control the team. Um, it, it does vary. The quarterback position is the most important position in all of sports, so that that's always kind of the the interesting one where there are teams that bring in a quarterback, and um, the expectation is that he's going to be the leader of the team. Um, there's always respect that needs to be given to everybody. Uh, even when you guys see it on hard knocks, when the older guys get on the young guys or make them do something embarrassing, um, there's always a level of respect to it. And it's, we've all, we've all been through it. We've all been a rookie. We've all had to go get the donuts on Saturday and bring them in for the team. Like we, we've all kind of had those same struggles. And a lot of it's just, you know, how, you know, you're, you're getting to know the guy as you do that stuff. When, when you make him do something that's not what he wants to do, but you want to see how he reacts to it. And the guys that kind of just shrug their shoulders and go along with it and just do it with a smile on their face, you know, like, okay, that's a, that's a guy who uh, is going to be okay dealing with sometimes the, the crappy parts of, of this business in the, in the long days and the guys that 
get upset about being asked to do something extra or the guys where you kind of look into like, all right, this guy's got kind of a weird perspective where he feels like he's above what we've all had to go through. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a hierarchy. I think it's just, there are traditions and things that guys have always done together and you, you kind of fall on the spectrum of young guy and old guy. And, um, the old guys just want to see kind of what, what a young guy is going to do uh, and how a young guy is going to respond and what, what they can, how much they can trust that young guy when the bullets start flying. Did they have to buy an RV or anything when you were up at Green Bay as a rookie? <laughs> no, no RV for me. I did have the, the donut duty. Um, the, there was a ton of rookie duties for, for Green Bay. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm one of the nicer vets, I would say, uh, when the young guys come in into Cleveland. But um, yeah, a lot of it is just you, you want to have fun. And that's been one of the great things about our profession is it, it feels like it's not a job. It feels like you're going to work every day and you're having fun. The locker room is is something you grow up in and, and you, you just have so much uh, enjoyable memories from every level, high school, college and pros. And that's what you look forward to every day is just getting back with, with your friends in the locker room and, and joking around. Um, so it's just trying to continue that and make it more of a family than, than like a workplace. I'm curious about the uh, the mentorship relationship in the NFL. You know, we hear it most from, I would say, probably the QB position where, where veterans, you know, when they see a young guy come in, they say it's not their job to groom the replacement. You know, they're focused about, you know, their cells and making sure that they're playing the best of their abilities. And, and it's not their job to sort of focus on the next, you know, phase of the team. But at the same time, you need veterans to take young guys under the wing and show them how to be professionals. What has your experience been on, on both sides of this mentee-mentor relationship? Yeah, I think it's it's never the the veteran's job um, to, to bring the rookie along. It's the coach's job, but I, I think the, the rookies learn a lot from the veterans naturally. And, and the, the veteran has his job is to perform and to play well and to prepare. And in doing so, it teaches the rookie a lot. And, and I think they might not set out to do it, but the rookie learns a lot and guys pull guys aside. And as we've had young centers, I was a young center once and I learned a ton from the veteran lineman in Green Bay. We had, we had some of the best. We had Josh Sitton and TJ Lang, uh, who, who taught me a ton of, of what it was about to be a pro and how to prepare and what to look for on the field. And I try to do the same thing for young guys when they come into the room. Uh, and, and I think that's sometimes the easiest way for a young guy to learn is to hear it and see it through the eyes of another player and not through the coach. Um, so sometimes it's just pulling the guy aside and you see a, a mistake happen on the field and you pull him aside and just say like, Hey, you know, you got to look for that safety rolling down on the backside. Like that's going to change your point. Like that's just a, a alert on that play all the time. Uh, and, and those are the little things I think really helps a young guy come around and learn and you're not embarrassing them or you're not calling them out, but you're just, you're just kind of pushing them in the right direction and passing around the little, little knowledge that you picked up over the years uh, and letting that live on for, for the next generation. I know we've brought up the CBA a couple times in this conversation, but I was hoping we could take a step back for a moment and you could explain to the listeners what the CBA is and why professional athletes care so much about it. Yeah, the CBA are, are our rules between the NFL and the NFLPA of how everything will be run, how contracts look, salary cap um, for workers, wages, benefits, working conditions, everything it, it goes into. It's an extremely long document, um, covers, covers everything you can imagine. Um, dur during the voting, it's, it was a 10-year CBA we were voting on. So you realize in, in the game of football, that is multiple generations of players. Um, so this is going to be the rules that dictate how the NFL works 
through not just our careers, but guys who are in college. Some guys who are doing the math probably in middle school um, will be playing under this collective bargaining agreement. And um, you want to make sure it's in the best interest. I know this year for our CBA, we raised minimum salary substantially was one of our focuses as a union. Uh, that's about over 60% of our membership plays on the minimum salary. So giving them a 20% salary increase was something we were really focused on and making sure they were taken care of and, and growing as the sport grows, making sure their salaries were growing too. Uh, and, and we also try to do a really good job of, of looking out for all the generations of football players. So we look, we look out for the guys coming into the league, the future of the league, the guys who are here now as well, the guys who played in the past. And we've reached back a lot. Um, we, we changed the vesting rule. There was a group of players who needed four years to vest for a pension. And we retroactively changed that to three years, which gave a bunch of people who didn't have pensions, pensions for the first time. Uh, and, and we heard stories about guys who uh, kept coming to camps, trying to get one more year to get a pension and couldn't do it. And now, you know, we've reached back and giving them a pension. We've given them all pension increases. We've given a huge number of them HRA accounts for the first time. Um, trying to reach back for the for the people we stand on, the, on their shoulders on the NFL who help grow the game, trying to reach back and help them as much as possible is another focus of ours. Um, so a lot goes into those deals, a, a lot. Um, there, there's a ton in it. It deals with our revenue split, how the salary cap's figured out, uh, and that's going to be the precedent for any issue that pops up the rest of the, the 10 years of what, what does it say in the CBA, how will that be interpreted, uh, and how do you move forward with that knowledge? So it, it's a, an extremely important vote that happens you know, once a, once a decade. I know more specifically within the CBA, you negotiate for off-season workouts, and most, if not all, teams have said they're not going to participate in these. Last year, injuries were down, and by many metrics, the quality of play increased. Especially as the league moves to a longer season, what are you looking for in terms of looking out for players? Could you see off-season workouts being phased out even in a post-COVID world? Yeah, that's been... Uh... A, a big issue over the, the past month or so. Um, I, I think the best way to, to do it is to take a little history lesson. In the 2011 deal, the league wanted to make the off-season program mandatory. They wanted us all to be here, have to be here, contractually obligated to be here. We negotiated to make sure it was voluntary. And now you come to this year, last year we had COVID, we had a virtual off-season and guys just felt better. They felt mentally and physically fresher getting that five months away from the facility at home with your family or wherever you want to live. Guys just felt good about it. And, and coming into this year, um, COVID, COVID's still going on. We, we still had issues and um, the NFL wasn't really interested in, in discussing how to, how to have the off season. They said, well, we'll let the CBA dictate it, which they have the right to hold these off season programs. But again, we negotiated for, the, to, for them to be voluntary and uh, like you said, uh, a bunch of players and teams have come out and said, we're, we're going to voluntarily uh, not show up. And, and that's our right under the CBA. We're protected in doing so. And, um, you know, there's a, a ton of narratives out there now that, that we deal with, with people saying, you know, you just negotiated a collective bargaining agreement last year. Why, if you cared so much, why wouldn't you have uh, negotiated a better offseason program? Uh, the, the tough thing with that is we already made it voluntary. So to give up anything in negotiations to have a more voluntary pro, like you can't, once it's optional, there's like you, giving up anything for something you don't have to do doesn't make much sense in negotiations where 
I would turn it around and say, if, if the offseason program meant so much to the NFL, they should have put it more of a priority to make it mandatory. And if they were okay with it being voluntary, they, they, they should have known that when it's optional, guys have the option not to do it. And, and we're seeing more and more guys take that option now. Now, speaking of OTAs, um, there were reports recently um, of, of Tom Brady giving an impassioned speech you know, on a player's call regarding you know, sort of an OTA boycott. How much does a high-profile player you know, like Tom Brady urging unity help the union's movement on, on any issue, really? Yeah, I mean, our power comes in unity. And, and a guy like Tom, who is universally respected in the league, um, that, that's always important to hear from him. And I think sometimes the narrative out there is that we don't want to do these off-season workouts because we're lazy or, or whatever reason there is. Um, guys train year-round. They, they need to in order to perform at a high level. So our training doesn't change. We just want to do it on our own terms. And when a guy like Tom, who is one of the hardest workers in the league, who nobody would question his work ethic, comes out and says, like, I'm on board with this, and I, I believe you guys are doing the right thing, and we're doing the right thing, I think that puts that narrative to bed, too, where, you know, clearly it's not a lazy thing. Tom works his tail off, as does every, every, every other player in the league. Um, so it's always important, especially when our stars and our quarterbacks come forward uh, to support the players. And we saw that last year for COVID. Uh, last year, we were trying to get a bunch of protections. Uh, we were worried about the preseason games, and we were worried about not having a proper acclimation period during training camp. And we saw 400 of our, of our star players come out on Twitter and demand the protections we were asking for. And that led to uh, almost immediate concessions by the league once, once those voices start you know, echoing around and, and making their, their voices heard. So we know how powerful our players' voices are, especially our stars, uh, and the more they get involved with union, uh, union issues and, and, and push that unity message, the stronger we become as a union as well. And following up on that, um, do you ever use that as a strategy and sort of, you know, approach, you know, the players, so you know, have, you know, more influence in the league and, and maybe ask them to say something when there's when it's, there's an important issue that you need, you know, buying on, whether from you know, public perception or from from players as a whole? You can never force a guy to do it. I mean, the guy has to be motivated to say it and, and has to believe in it. Nobody's going to put their their name out there. Like if Tom didn't didn't believe in that message and that message gets out there, Tom doesn't want, you know, a lie to be out there that he doesn't actually believe. Um, so you, you talk to guys and you understand where they stand on topics, what they believe in. Uh, and, and then you also, we've been having a ton of team calls where each team gets on the phone and talks about what they want to do as a team. So you start hearing where guys stand around the league. And we knew we surveyed our, our po player population and we knew over 70% of guys believe a virtual off season is in the best interest of players. So we knew that's where the majority of the league stood of our players. Uh, and that's what we were fighting for. And now we've seen that kind of continue on as guys came out and said, okay, if we're not going to get a virtual offseason, we just won't do the offseason. And you've brought up data a couple times now. And, you know, for us as students at Cornell, it's, it comes up in our classes all the time. And I was hoping you could explain to us a little bit more about why data is so important in your role and why it's so important in your decision-making process. Yeah. Well, like I said, going into last year, we knew it was going to be uh, – an interesting data set because we had never really had a virtual off season. We never had that acclimation part of training camp. All that stuff was new. So we really wanted to see kind of how the data came back, what the injuries looked like. And throughout the year, anecdotally, most of the guys were saying like, I, I feel good, but you don't make decisions off anecdotes. Like that's, that's not how you, you make really crucial decisions. So we, 
we patiently waited for the data to come back. And then it was about looking at, okay, well, let's, let's see what the numbers actually tell us. And, and we saw that by getting rid of the off-season program, just not doing it, we cut 14% of all injuries that year. That's good for players. Like that's wear and tear on guys' bodies. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, people say, well, how serious are there? Every injury is just another thing that, that sticks with you for the rest of your career. And, and, and that's been the, the conversation with a lot of guys is wh why would I volunteer to potentially get hurt and decrease my chances of actually making the team when training camp rolls around? Uh, and guys are starting to look at this as, you know, you don't make the team in April, May, or June, but you can surely lose your opportunity to make the team if you pull a hamstring or you have a serious injury. And guys are making their decisions based off that information we're learning about. And we're, you know, we're looking at decreases in concussions and the best way to, to follow through with that. Um, and, and I think the more data we have drives the conversation on especially health and safety for players. And, and that's something you can never take time um, to sit back and, and let things play out. You have to continue to be pushing the health and safety every single year um, be, because you never want to sit back and think, yeah, we maybe did enough. And then you realize you've just given up multiple years of time. You could have been pushing that message and pushing that narrative forward. Uh, and, and that's really been our focus. And that's the one thing when we talk about unity and, and what's important to players, we have a ton of different income levels in the NFL. We have a ton of different years of experience, contract structures, health and safety touches every single player that goes on the, uh, that plays on a football team. Uh, so it, it's the one subject that everybody has skin in the game on. And, and it's the one thing guys care about because, you know, I, I look at guys who played before who are beat up and, and I would love to get football to a point where guys didn't have to sacrifice the back half of their life for the front half of their life, where they, they have a great life, play football, enjoy it, something they love doing, and they can't play with their kids or their grandkids when they're older. Like that's, that's not what you want. You want to get to a point where you can do the things you want when you're young and still be functional when you're older. Uh, and, and that's why it's such an important conversation to have every year. Every injury you can knock off a guy's body will help him long-term, will help him live a better life long-term. And that's why it's so important. JC, going back to when you were running for, for president of the PA, I know it was a bit of a contentious race with many candidates. You know, some ended up dropping out. Um, during that process, you never publicly disclosed whether you thought, you know, players should support or reject the most recent CBA. But those running against you did for the most part. What was your thought process, you know, behind taking a more neutral approach here? Yeah, you have to have a lot of conversations. You have to know where, what's important to guys. Um, and, and that was one of the things with, with the COVID stuff. That was kind of my first collective bargaining into it of making sure guys um, had the answers they want. And, and the health and safety, that was the, the, the good start to it because COVID for health and safety for football players, it always meant on the field. You know, how do we keep guys safe and healthy on the field? And then COVID came along. And it was like, well, health and safety takes on a total different definition when you're dealing with a pandemic. So um, now guys were looking at how do I keep my family safe? Like how, how these protocols need to be in a position that I feel okay going home. And I feel like I'm not putting my, my wife or my kids or I have living elderly grandparents or parents in my house. And I feel like I'm putting them at added risk. Um, so you, you deal with that. And that's why I said, you know, the health and safety always is important. Um, we haven't had too much with, with money, but you always just want to hear where guys' perspective is and understand every issue is going to be broken down and there are going to be different issues that impact everybody differently. Um, but I think when guys have faith and trust in their leadership, that they were looking at the best interest of all players and, 
that that's kind of how this whole thing works. And we try to, to raise out and we always have our executive committee does a really great job of, of looking at things through every lens possible as well of, you know, if we make this change that might negatively impact the bottom of the roster guys. So how, what else can we do to, to fix that issue? So we try to, we try to see the ripple effects before the ripple effects happen. Uh, where when, before we make a change, we try to look through every avenue of how this will impact every guy in the roster and try to avoid any uh, unintended consequences of, of those decisions. And you mentioned that you represent a wide range of players in terms of age, salary, and, and other aspects. So the wants of a player who is on a $100 million contract versus those on a minimum contract are, are very different. So how do you manage these uh, conflicting viewpoints within your membership to make sure that everyone's voices are heard? My focus was on educating the membership. And I thought this was going to be a, a critical decision for every single player that, that's going to vote. Um, and I just didn't think it was my place to tell them how to or push them to vote a certain way. I was really focused on getting them every answer and all the information possible and then pushing them just to make an informed decision that they thought was best for them. And, and, and that was kind of how I looked at it going through the whole process, even through the interviews. Um, I, I never really talked about how I was going to vote and I still haven't. Uh, and, and now I, I think even after it, it's happened, um, it, it goes to trying to figure out or, or try to move forward as a, as a union. We're, we're a democracy and when the democracy makes a decision, you move forward and, and you might not have agreed with it, but that's how a democracy works and you move forward and push forward and you start fighting for the things. And that's why I tried to preach to guys, um, you know, if this deal does pass and you're upset and you think it wasn't good enough, continue to fight and, and continue to fight for things that you wanted to see change because you can make changes within CBAs. You can fight for those things. Um, so don't just sit back and throw your hands up and say, I didn't, I didn't get the answer I wanted. I'm done. I, I'm out. Um, continue to have that same motivation, that same push. Um, throughout the whole time. But that, that was my kind of my outlook going into it. For a moment, I just wanted to quickly talk about the new NFL TV deal that was signed last spring. It was $100 billion plus, but the media really made it seem as if it was a loss for the players, mostly because the CBA had already been signed and the revenue split was set in stone. But I wanted to see, how did you view that deal? Yeah, so it kind of got framed that this was a, a loss of some sort for the NFLPA by the, by the league signing this huge TV deal. We're a revenue sharing business. So, you know, we get a percentage of every dollar that the NFL brings in. So we hope the NFL does great on their TV deals. We hope they bring in a ton of money because that means we get a ton of money. So uh, that, that was kind of a weird interpretation where it's like, oh, the NFL got their wool pulled over their eyes. You know, we even had the foresight in this CBA to negotiate the first ever media kicker. So we knew the TV deals were coming up. And based off how big the TV deals were, we were going to get increased share of revenue. So well, as these TV deals get reported and we figure out how much exactly money the, the NFL is going to make, we're not only getting a, a, a bigger pie to pull our percentage out of, we're also getting a bigger percentage of that bigger pie, which is phenomenal for us. So we were, we were hoping the TV deals were going to be huge because it's more money for us and it means we're getting a bigger share of the money too as we, as we get them reported. Um, so that, that's always the, the interesting thing as a revenue sharing. And, and we had to deal with the revenue sharing aspect of it last year as well for COVID because our salary cap works as a projection. So 
going into last year when we projected the salary cap, we didn't project a worldwide pandemic. So we had already made the, the salary cap and then we realized there's gonna be no fans and there's gonna be $4 billion less of revenue than we expected. And then the issue came, how do you deal with that? The CBA, the language in the CBA says we have a true up, which means at the end of the year, whatever money brought in more or less just comes out of the cap next year. If we just left it to the true up, the salary cap this year would have completely plummeted where every team would have been destroyed. You had to cut all the veterans, you had to restructure everybody. Um, so then it became the two parties really had to negotiate with kind of a ticking time bomb because neither side wanted to get to that point of the true up. The, the owners wanted um, an escrow deal where we took 35% of all player salaries last year and just took them away and that way it covered the losses we were gonna take. The players obviously didn't want that. We were about to play in the middle of, a, of an unforeseen pandemic. We don't want to pay. We don't want to give up 35% of our our salaries. So we had just signed this 10-year CBA, and we thought let's push the losses over as many years as possible and use the CBA to our advantage and try to smooth this loss as much as possible. So that was really the the crux of the negotiations. And now the TV deals are going to help with that. As more money comes in, in in 2022 and 2023, it's going to help make that money up and pay back the losses that we we took. Um, but but those are the issues that when we talk about the CBA dictates everything. The CBA has the answers in it, and sometimes neither side likes the answers that's in the CBA for the situation you're in. And then it's about okay, well we both are motivated now to negotiate for a better answer that works for both sides. Do you think the revenue hit taken by the NFL will have a long-lasting impact on player salary or the salary cap? Or is each year siloed and those numbers bounce back once revenues return to normal levels? Uh, it's tough to tell now. And, and part of that negotiations was understanding we didn't know the impacts of COVID this year. Um, we understood the losses that were going to be taken last year because of COVID when there was going to be very limited, if any, fans at all. Um, but we and we still don't 100 percent know what this season is going to look like we really hope that vaccinations continue to be taken up and people get vaccinated and we reach herd immunity and we can have full stadiums again that's our hope but until we actually see that you don't fully understand um, the path forward with the salary cap and how quickly we're going to make the money back um, so that that's still being figured out and we're kind of um, you know at the or, or the victim of whatever the the country ends up doing with with covid so our hope is in september we can run out of the tunnel with full stadiums that would be great for the fans great for the product and, and great for us as we as we try to deal with the revenue losses from covid and i know you know a key part of that increase in revenue for the players was the fact that the nfl added a 17th game on for this upcoming season you know, how did that conversation go and what were kind of the, some of the things that you guys talked about behind the scenes? Yeah, the 17th game was really the, the crux of the whole conversation. Um, in a previous CBA, uh, and I believe in the 2006 deal, the NFL had the right to go to 18 games whenever they wanted to. Didn't have to check with us, could just go to 18 games whenever. Uh, in 2011, the NFLPA negotiated that right away where they couldn't go more than 16 games. So we took the right they originally had away and then made them pay for it in 2020. So they came back and said, we want to increase games. And we said, well, how much are you willing to give up for it? And that was the crux of the entire CBA deal was, you know, we get a bigger share of revenue. We get increases to the minimum salaries. Um, we get 
the, you know, all the changes we've talked about in this conversation. And then it's up to the guys to vote. Is that enough to play an extra game or is it? And, and that was really the whole decision of the CBA. And it was a very tight margin, 60 votes in, in the end. But that was the whole conversation was, did we get enough for that 17th game? Uh, and the players decided, yeah, we, we did. Um, and, and then we, we moved forward from that. And now um, the TV deals, I, I've yet to kind of get all of them to read through them. And, and kind of we'll see how, you know, how long they last, what they're all about. Uh, and we'll, we'll move forward from there as we understand them. Shifting a little bit to, to your free agency and, and contract situation in general, you went through your first free agency in 2017 with the Browns and recently signed a three-year extension. Can you talk a little bit about how both of those signings, you know, played out and, you know, the differences between signing a pure, um, you know, free agency deal versus the negotiations that might take place during an extension when you're, you know, currently on a team? Yeah, so for for the free agency deal, I, I had um, been banged up and injured quite a bit in Green Bay. And I got to my fourth year, the final year of my deal, and I'd finally earned back my starting center job. And I played the first seven games at center, played well, uh, and then had a bad knee injury uh, in my seventh game, at the end of the game. And my knee never got right. I couldn't, I, something was wrong with it. I couldn't figure it out. Eventually, at the end of the year, I tried to come back and it just wasn't, wasn't what it was supposed to be. So I had to get, get surgery. And then you go into free agency and you're off of surgery. You had played very limited because of all the injuries you had. There was a, you know, an injury risk around you uh, that you'd been hurt a bunch and you're coming off an injury and you hadn't played since you got hurt. So teams are always a little nervous about that of, I haven't seen him since he got hurt. How bad is it? And is he ever going to be the same? So those were kind of the, the lenses of my, my first free agency um, was kind of where am I going to go and, and how is it going to work? I, I felt like I was a, a starting center in this league and I wanted to find a, a place that was going to allow me to play center and, and start and grow at that position. Uh, and then it really came down to, to two options. I could go back to Green Bay, which I had no guarantees that they were going to have me play center or start me at center, um, or I could go to Cleveland and change teams. And um, I decided to go to Cleveland and, and, and go to a team where I knew I'd be the guy. I knew it'd be the center. I knew it'd be one of the older leaders on the team. And that was something that, I, that was exciting to me, uh, was kind of stepping in that leadership role. I was like the seventh oldest guy in the Green Bay offensive line room alone. And then I walked in to be like the fourth oldest guy on the Cleveland team. So it was a totally different, you know, roster and, and, and um, you know, organization. So that was kind of the whole lens of that. And then my whole focus on that one was, I believe that I, I was going to play well. And I wanted to get back to free agency before I was 30. Um, so in the negotiations, the Browns wanted to sign a four-year deal. And I was adamant that I did not want to go more than three years. That way I'd be back up before I was 30 for another round of free agency. Um, 30 is the always kind of age where people think you're over the hill and can no longer play football, even though it's not exactly true, but you, you know, that's in the back of, of teams' minds. So we eventually agreed to that three-year deal, uh, played it out. And then going into the last year of the, the three-year deal, um, it was trying to figure out kind of what we wanted to do from there. Uh, I had, um, you know, I had all the injury concerns in green Bay at that point, I hadn't missed a snap and in, in my entire time in Cleveland, I still haven't. So I had kind of put to bed the, the he gets hurt a lot issue. 
um, and I felt like I was performing as a top tier center in the league. Uh, and then every situation is different as you do these negotiations because you're really, uh, when you're doing an extension, you're negotiating against yourself and you're dealing with your own risk tolerance. So as, as they were going, they're, they're offering things to you and it's a lot of money, it's life-changing money and it, you have to be comfortable with what you're accepting. And I know I went into it and said, like, we can talk extension, um, but I'm fine going to expiration and I'm fine becoming a free agent. So I, I'm not going to feel rushed or pressured uh, to, to sign a deal that I, I don't love. And you, you work on it for weeks and then eventually gets to the point where they get to the like, this is the best we're going to do. Um, it's take it now or we'll see you in free agency. And then you make the decision. And in the end, I, I thought, could I get more in free agency? Yeah, probably, maybe. I'm not never guaranteed, but I felt like it was uh, life-changing money for me. And in the end, for uh, you know, a hundred thousand more dollars per year, I could get in free agency. I could live with feeling a tad bit underpaid, um, but I couldn't deal with me blowing out my knee with that contract on the table and losing all of it. Um, so that was like my deciding factor in that, where it was like, I'm okay feeling like I didn't get full value of free agency and signing a deal early um, because I would rather lock into an amazing deal that I'm very happy with and sets me up for the rest of my life uh, than risk losing it all. I don't think I could have lived with myself uh, if, if I got hurt and, and didn't take that deal. And that's so interesting in free agency. It seems like most players usually sort of, you know, scrapping and clawing to get another year added onto the contract. And here you were trying to sort of negotiate the Browns down to a, to a shorter, you know, shorter agreement. Yeah, just, just, to, just to touch on that, I, I think that's the interesting part, and it comes up a ton in the media. Um, guaranteed contracts. Um, and, and there's nothing in any other sports CBA that guarantees them guaranteed contracts. It is just what's become the norm negotiated by their players. Um, so something that I've always looked at for, for myself in these is when you get past your guaranteed portion of your contract, which is usually about the first year is fully guaranteed and the second year is mostly guaranteed. And then after that, you have no guaranteed money left. And the way I've always looked at that is at that point of your contract, which is usually around year three, if you're still on the team and they haven't cut you, it's because you're underpaid. If they, they enjoy having you on the team because they're getting you at a deal. If you're overpaid, they'll cut you because it doesn't cost them anything. So that's always been my perspective on it is I don't, I don't want to have a ton of years of non-guaranteed money because best case scenario is I'm super underpaid and I have to play on a contract longer when I could be making more money. And the best case scenario is they're just like, yeah, you're not good anymore. You get none of this money anymore. And that's not good either way. So that's what my focus, I signed another three-year deal in my extension of uh, my first two years, they're mostly guaranteed and the third year won't be guaranteed. And then after that, I want to be a free agent. I don't want to have a ton of years on the back end of my contract that I really have no control over my, my salary anymore. Oh, absolutely. And it's, I wonder why more people don't take that same approach as you, but, um, you know, how important is it to have an experienced, you know, seasoned agent like Jared to help you through these you know, negotiation processes? Yeah, it's it's really important. And you have a I have a really good relationship with Jared um, and he's good because I think we can have really um, honest conversations where sometimes you see agents um, 
feel like it's their job not to lie, but to massage the ego or the hopes of players and, and bring them into a false sense of reality of like, you know, everybody's going to love you. You're going to have a, you're going to have 30 offers. Every team's going to be knocking on your door. And then when it doesn't happen, you know, the player looks at the guy like, what the heck? Like, what, what were you talking about? And, and that's been always the great part about my relationship with Jared is we're two people who, you know, speak very honestly and openly. And, you know, my first time around, like Jared was a guy who said like, listen, you're coming off an injury. Um, you've been injured a lot. You're not going to have a ton of interest because of your injuries. So just like understand that going in. So I, I, I went in prepared for those issues and there wasn't some like, no, like everybody loves you, JC. Like, don't worry about it. People are going to be, you know, signing you. You're going to have offers left and right. I knew what, what I, what I was in for. And that was the same thing with my extension where I could call him. And, you know, early on, I knew what dollar amount I wanted to get to. And then eventually get to the point where he can say, you know, this is probably as high as you'll get. Like, I don't think we have any more room to push him and you have to make a decision. And then, you know, I meet with my family and make whatever the best decision for, for my family. But that was always great about Jared. Uh, and that's why I really love him as an agent, because I, I always felt like he was just telling me the brutal truth. And I think that's all you can ask for somebody who's negotiating your contract is uh, you get no bonus points for making me feel good. Um, you get bonus points for doing your job good and being honest with me and, and allowing me to have all the information to make the right decision. What are some of those other factors that you're taking into account in contract negotiations and in your decision-making process? I got to imagine being on a winner, being on a team that looks like it can make it to the Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl uh, is at the top of that list, but are there other things as well? Yeah, they, they all it, it's all just a spectrum and, and it, it moves... You know, one of the nice things about Cleveland is the fact that I'm, you know, close to both my parents who live in Buffalo and my wife's family who lives in Detroit. Um, like that's something about Cleveland that's a benefit to Cleveland. It has nothing to do about football at all, but it's something that definitely adds into the spectrum of what do I want to sign? Where do I want to be? Um, the team, how good it's going to be. You want to you want to win a Super Bowl. That's what you want to do. So being on a team that you feel is capable of winning a Super Bowl is an important part of the decision. The money is an important part of the decision. Uh, all of it plays into it where you have to be really comfortable with what you're signing on to uh, and where you're going to be. That's where you're going to spend your life. It's where you and your family is going to live, where your kids are going to grow up. All that goes into these decisions. Um, and every guy's different on how much each of those decisions or each of those situations impact their end decision. Um, but it, it all you know, adds into the, the stew that you're cooking up trying to figure out what's best. Last question, JC. You know, you're on a team right now where your general manager, Andrew Barry, played football at Harvard. Your head coach, Kevin Stefanski, played football at Penn. Stephen Carlson, a tight end on the team, played football at Princeton. Do you guys have a friendly wager on this upcoming 2021 Ivy League football season? Yeah, it, it it's always been that way for, for Cleveland. We even had another tight end, Seth Devolve, uh, at Cleveland for my first couple of years, too. So we've we've continued to have a, a ton of Ivy League players in the organization. Um, so I, I'm sure there'll be there'll be something once the Ivy League starts kicking off again. Um, so that, that'll be an exciting uh, added benefit of the year. Awesome. Thanks again so much, JC. It was great chatting with you and we really appreciate your time. Oh, awesome. It was really enjoyable. I'm glad you guys uh, thought of me and asked me on. Thank you for listening to Present Value, an independent student-run podcast. 
founded, created, and produced by MBA students at Cornell University. I hope you enjoyed this episode, hosted by me, Willow Hearn, Eliza Sherman, and Josh Gershenfeld, and produced by Christine Gabrellian. Until next time, thanks for listening.